the fact that uh, Beethoven was performed before actually gives the impression that that's the case, that he, he's being considered as a composer that represents the Western values, let's call it like that, for the Greek audiences. And this didn't change during the war times. I don't think that people thought that Beethoven was a Nazi composer in that sense. Just a few months, weeks actually, before the Nazis uh, leaving Athens, the National Opera decides to stage Fidelio, the only Beethoven opera. At the final scene of the chorus where the prisoners are being liberated and they're led outside the prison, the Greek public were stood up during the whole chorus part. These people knew to stand up at the moment where the prisoners are led to light, basically, to, to freedom. This is Claiming Beethoven. We portrait a group of international musicologists and historians examining aspects of propaganda, collaboration, resistance, persecution and exile to learn about the distortion of historiography and the relevance for our own present times. This podcast by Michael Custodis and his team at the University of Münster is related to the project the role of Beethoven and his music in Nazi-occupied European countries. For all our dear listeners, welcome back to our podcast Claiming Beethoven. I'm talking to Alexandros Hagiolakis in Athens. So for all the listeners, welcome back. And for Alexandros, it's so nice to keep on talking to you. Hi. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me here for the second time. And uh, in the first part of our episode, you summarized with very strong details the situation of Greece during the Second World War and the music life and the relations between Germany and Greece. Now we somehow dig deeper. And as we know from your writings, you're a specialist on the symphonic music life in Greece, especially concerning Athens. What do we need to know before we even get closer, like with a microscope, getting closer to even the Beethoven reception? What do we need to know about the symphonic music life in Greece during those years? Well, there are two parts that we need to know, actually. I think that the political situation needs to be described a bit before going to the symphonic world, just after the occupation. Because the political situation during the occupation years, it is very vital to what we're going to see happening with the establishment of the orchestra and how the orchestra used to play and the symphonic music. So uh, let me just give you a bit of insight, if, if I may, of what's happening just after the occupation. Fast after the Axis powers take over Greece, there are several resistance movements cropping up in various places around Greece. I had the pleasure of editing a book that contains the autobiography of a very significant musician who actually used to play the trombone at the symphony orchestra, but he was a very fervent and very active person in the resistance movement, member of the Communist Party. His name was Alekos Xenos, and it's a book that has been published by the Benaki Museum publications. It contains a lot, but one of the, I think, very important parts of it, his autobiography. Unfortunately, for the time being, it is only available in Greek, but hopefully it will be translated into English at some point because I think it gives a very good analysis of the symphonic situation because he, as I said, was a trombone player. So the issue has to do with uh, Alekos Xenos is that he has been a member of the Communist Party and he has been trying to establish 
establish through the Communist Party a very big movement of the people. So what happens in Greece? The Communist Party establishes with other powers EAM, which was the biggest resistance organization that has a military branch called ELAS, and other forces establish their own parts. These rule areas around Greece, but let's focus for the time being in Athens, what's happening in Athens. Following a very communist organization, EAM has their own branch for actors but also for musicians, as you can understand. So people who are active and they are communists, they get involved in the resistance movement. And there are some great stories that Alekos Xeno says. Maybe we can share one or two which are anecdotal in a sense, but they are not anecdotal, they are real. If they happened. One, of course, involves a Beethoven concert, but I'm going to talk mm. a bit about that later. So the resistance is fervent around the country, especially in the years after 1941, 42, 43. From the left side of the political spectrum, but also from the right side, but even from other powers that they are trying to establish their own resistance teams. So this is the political situation. This is one part. Now let's go and see what was the orchestral, the symphonic uh, world at the time. So the Greek musicians always wanted to establish a proper symphonic orchestra that was run in the way like other European orchestras are being run. And they have been trying a lot. The main orchestra from the beginning of the 20th century up until the day that the occupation happened was the orchestra established by the Athens Conservatory. This is the previous phase of what we call now the State Orchestra of Athens. Okay, this evolved into becoming that. So the Athens Conservatory Symphony Orchestra was the main orchestra in Greece. There were other groups that they, they tried, orchestral ensembles that they tried to be established. Other conservatories tried to establish orchestras. This actually fell through. They were very short-lived. So the longest-lived ensemble was the Athens Conservatory Symphony Orchestra. With this orchestra, the first year after the occupation, the orchestra reassembled a few months later after the Axis powers took over Athens. And they resumed playing concerts. They were playing in some, as they used to call them then, cinema theatres here in Athens. These were their concert halls because there was no proper concert hall. But also, in the summer, they used to play at the Herodos Atticus, at the Odeon, as they call it, if you've ever been to Athens. The Athens Festival happens there. It's a magnificent place. In my opinion, not very suitable for music, but what can you do? It's, it's a very nice place because you play under the Acropolis, so it's very nice. In any case, there, there have been many concerts. So, during the 1942-43, the orchestra is playing, and there are, you know, there are under the supervision of the Axis powers, basically the Germans, who have taken over supervision of the arts as they established in Athens. The most performed composer happens to be Beethoven, and there are several reasons for that. First of all, an orchestra has a repertoire that is being determined at those times, not today that we have all these resources, at those times of the material, the musical material that they have available, the musical sets basically, but also the musical sets that they have been decided to be bought in the previous decades and they belong to the library of the Athens Conservatory Symphony Orchestra slash State Orchestra from 1943 onwards, they were actually German and actually Beethoven. So there are a lot of orchestral sets of Beethoven symphonies that they are being performed in Athens. This was happening before the war, it happened during the war. 
and it still happens after the war. I mean, Beethoven is a composer of magnitude, so one cannot, you know, stop performing. I know that your research concerning Beethoven is still in the beginning, but do you already have an overview concerning which repertoire was performed? Were there changes or exceptions or was the continuity the strongest? So what was performed during the 1930s was now continued to be performed. So does the repertoire help us to understand, to learn anything about the political changes or is here a concert life simply a concert life? I think it's a concert life, simply a concert life. The repertoire, the Beethoven repertoire continued to be performed all these years from the 30s onwards without exceptions. And actually, you know, milestones in the life of the orchestra are considered things like performing for the first time the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, which happens later, actually, not after the occupation. That happens later. So Beethoven sometimes, in a sense, he's connected with these milestones of the orchestral life. But also the newly established National Opera, one of the first works that they do as a professional and individual body is performing Fidelio at the Herodos Atticus Theatre. So not only the orchestral sound, not only the symphonic sound, but also Fidelio has been chosen to be on the first season of the newly established National Opera. One should know one important factor. During the occupation and after continuous efforts by several people, I, I will come back to that, the orchestra of the Athens Conservatory is being established as the state orchestra of Athens. That happens in 1943, actually it happens in December 1942, but first appearance happens in 1943, February, if I'm not mistaken. And the State Orchestra, as we know it today, and I have the privilege and the honor to be a member of the board of the orchestra right now, is something that was actually established during the German occupation. Also, the National Opera is... Again, establishment that happened during the last months of the German occupation, there was always, as people wanted to have an orchestra, they want to have an opera. And actually, this goes back in the 19th century from the Ionian Islands, who had a very, very established and quite active operatic scene there that has been moved to Athens over the first decades of the 20th century. There were many, many efforts in order to establish an opera. And then it was established just before the war in 1939 as a subdivision of the National Theatre and then became an individual organization in 1944. So we need to understand that these products, they have been established during the German occupation. And I do not know if one can say that this is is disgraceful. I do not know. Maybe. Sometimes I think about it and I'm not very sure about it, but um, that's how it happened. First of all, it's the history of institutions, and that's a very recent phenomena. How do we deal with controversial histories of institutions that still exist? I'd like to come back to that a little bit later, because that brings some of the questions to our own times concerning the relevance of uh, so collaborative research, as we're doing, because that also applies for many other colleagues. For example, from the former Eastern European countries, where one occupation followed another occupation during the Soviet period. 
But I would like to come back to the examples you just gave with Greek orchestras, Greek institutions, ensembles performing Beethoven. As we know from other countries, but I'm not sure if this is the case for Greece, there was a controversial discussion if this is like a German, Germanic Beethoven or if this is European cultural heritage. Let me give an example from France where the debate goes back at least to the 1870s where French musicians proclaimed that Beethoven is a European composer and after the First World war that the Germans losing this war, the Great War, had lost the right to speak on behalf of Beethoven. So that performing Beethoven was some sort of a political signal, a sign that this is European cultural heritage. And if we compare that with Toscanini conducting Wagner in the 1940s, it's this statement of We do not accept that Hitler has the right to claim, in this case, Wagner and German cultural heritage of music only for Nazi propaganda. Is that a comparison that would match the situation in Greece or is that some sort of too political interpretation of a situation we do not already know so much about? Because as we said, your research for those questions is still in the starting phase. So does that match this comparison? Well, the fact that uh, Beethoven was performed before actually gives the impression that that's the case, that he, he's being considered as a composer that represents the Western values, let's call it like that, for the Greek audiences. And this didn't change during the war times. I don't think that people thought that Beethoven was a Nazi composer in that sense. Although some people thought that, for instance, Wagner was a Nazi composer because they were, of course, dragged into it because of the well-known texts that he, he wrote about Judaism in music and all that. So they could relate to that and make a bit of a historical leap in terms of understanding the course of, of, of history and things. In any case, though, Beethoven represented a European perspective. It was not considered to be a German perspective per se. If I may, I want to tell a little story because I think that this story shows how people were receiving Beethoven. It's a well-known story. It's not probably people might know it, but still might someone doesn't know. So it is 1944. It's just a few months, weeks actually, before the Nazis uh, leaving Athens. Of course, it is a well-known fact. I mean, people know they receive information that the fronts are collapsing and uh, Germany is losing the war. And then the National Opera decides to stage Fidelio, the only Beethoven opera. First appearance of uh, Maria Callas, by the way, as a protagonist, let's call it like that. This has a significance of its own, but there are there are letters and there are articles that they appeared later because they were not allowed to write them during the weeks of occupation. The story goes like that. The occupied people are sitting at the upper tier of the theater. The Germans and their collaborators, they sit at the lower tier and there are, you know, soldiers in between and all that. So at the final scene of the chorus where the prisoners are being liberated and they're led outside the prison, a staged, not staged, nobody knows exactly what happened there, but there was a resistance move by the public whom they stood up during the whole 
chorus parts. I'm sure that there needed to be some kind of coordination by one of the resistance teams of the musicians to coordinate all these people. But these people knew to stand up at the moment where the prisons are led to light, basically, to the freedom. And of course, there were thunderous applause. And, you know, all these journalists that they write about it, they say that the Germans were turning their heads and they were looking afraid that because they didn't know what will happen to them if the resistance will appear from the mountain above with their machine guns. It was a, a true story that happened and actually happened in all the takes, all the different times that the work was played. I think it did eight, if I'm not mistaken, repetitions. And in all eight of them, the Greek public were standing when the chorus was uh, being sounded. You already mentioned how difficult it is to deal with the history of institutions, of traditions that have at least one part of their origin during the years of the German occupation. In general, the political history of Greece kept on being complicated for quite a while. You already mentioned the civil war, there was a military dictatorship, so there were very tragic, very difficult, complex situations. And during recent years, it kept on being complicated once in a while. So how difficult is it or controversial for Greece musicology to address this history? Because what I keep learning from other colleagues, going back into the history of the German occupation in this case, opens chapters of history that were either tabooed or tried to be forgotten. So getting back into the memories of people can be very revealing at the same time very complicated. So concerning historiography and the research history in Greece, what do we already know and how difficult is it to address those questions? Well, it is difficult. There are subjective and objective reasons. The objective reasons have to do with the archival culture that we have here in Greece. The archives were not being kept so meticulously all these years, and this makes it very hard to go back and do your research in order to reveal things. There's a subjective part as well, because the people who were active in the 1940s, they were active actually up maybe the seven. So there are someone's teacher, there are someone who is like a more famous musician now. They are established figures in the musical world. So it's not that easy to debunk, let's call it like that, you know, myths. There has been research because, for instance, the very shaky years after 1944 and during the first phases of the civil war, actually a civil war that has started already during the Nazi occupation in 1943 onwards, as research has shown nowadays, but especially with the December incidents here in Athens, which was the first phase of the, in 1944 and January 1945, but also the second phase later of the civil war, it obviously has to do a lot with institutions and people. The thing is that uh, it's not very convenient, let's say, to touch upon little myths, because there are either hearsay stories about them or there are concrete proof but there is no surrounding atmosphere are not correct in order to be revealed although people you know they are doing what it's been heard through the grapevine but it's not very easy to reveal it is um, difficult to terms with these things because how things evolved later on in the civil war things didn't draw a line in 1944 and then you know they went to a smooth transition to democracies this didn't 
happen. Not even in the 50s, this didn't happen. So this continuous change, it's not that easy to ease up and be able to reveal things. This goes up till today because these are our grandfathers, sometimes our fathers that they are being involved. It's not that easy to believe that your father or your grandfather uh, was involved in something like that. You're very right. That's what I keep learning from other colleagues from other countries. And of course, that's a lesson German music history had to learn for quite a while that it took many different changes of generations to develop situation where you can discuss controversial biographies, but at the same time respecting that there were strong artistic talents. If we have a look at the development in Europe during, let's say, 2000 years, certain discussions became more difficult than they used to be immediately after the fall of the Iron Curtain. That's true. You know, I think that we have a false understanding of time sometimes. We think that 80 years or 82 years, it's a long period. Actually, it's not at all. There are people who are still alive who were present at the time. I mean, it's not it's not that easy to talk about things that they're going to involve too many people and established figures. And we need more time in order for them to be... Either we need to make, you know, a direct blow into the thing and then just, you know, go for the bare facts, although someone is going to be upset or not, or we will need more time, you know, to start to being able to discuss them, you know. If I may, I'd like summing up uh, our discussion, having a look at the perspectives of our research network. I keep on learning quite a lot and I'm very curious for many things to learn more about of a certain repertoire, certain countries, certain artists. What challenges have you set for yourself and what somehow arouses your strongest curiosity concerning our project? Well, first of all, it's a very unique project, I think, because we always tend to see the beauty in things. So we want to see the beauty through this project through a very dark period because Beethoven's music has beauty in it. It's like a gem of European culture. It's one of the of the jewels in the crown of what we call European culture. And we want to see through a reflection of it on a very difficult and dark period of Europe. So I'm a bit lucky, let's say, I do not know what happens in other countries, but I'm a bit lucky because there is a lot of Beethoven being played here in Athens. Not only in the symphonic part, because we should not forget, I said, I talked about the operatic part, but there is a lot of uh, chamber music that's being uh, performed. This is Beethoven still, and we need to see this in conjunction. We need to see this a spectrum of musics. So it would be very, very interesting to go back and be able, or try anyway, I hope I will succeed, to see how these musicians, from one point of view, were seeing this music when they were performing it how did they perceive it one is this one and then i would very much like to go on the stands on the audience side and see how they were receiving this music so i think this is one of the strongest motives in this research so that's where i want to head to wow i fully agree and what a way to close our podcast episode this time alexandros it's a pleasure talking to you and uh, that's my own motivation that i have so many chances during the next years to keep on discussing those things with all of you in our context of the research project and for our dear listeners i am and i was soon talking to alexandros hakiolakis in athens he was our guest for today to inform us about the music life in Nazi-occupied Greece. And if you like to learn more 
about his work and his personality and his writings, which I highly like to recommend, please visit his website at the Friends of Music Society in Athens. If you want to learn more about our own research project, please visit musicandresistance.net. If you like, follow us on Instagram and on social media. But last but not least, Alexandros, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time, for all the information you gave and for your attitude to dig deep into those complex situations which you kept presenting so lively. Thank you very much, Michael. I am very excited for what is coming as well. This is, I think, this is going to be the highlight of the next few years for me. So it's going to be great. Thank you very much. It was so great talking to you and talk to you soon then. Thanks. This podcast was presented by Michael Custodes and his team. Francesco Bruno took care of editing, sound design and production.